Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to River City Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Joel in the Old Testament, Joel, and that's going to be, of course, right after Hosea. We're in a series uh, of messages entitled Major Messages from the Minor Prophets, and so we come to this second part of the series today in the book of Joel. We'll get there in just a moment. I do want to... Uh, say thank you to all you who participated last week in our fundraising auction for the students to be able to go to camp. And I'm happy to tell you that we raised all of the money necessary uh, for our students and the adult sponsors to go to camp. And uh, over $10,000 was raised uh, at the auction. So give yourself a hand. Way to go. That was awesome. And I'm looking forward to now starting to pray for that camp. It's at the third week of July. Pray with us as our students begin to plan and go there and ask God to work in their lives uh, in a powerful way. And I, and I know we're going to look forward to seeing what God does there. Also, next Sunday, of course, is Mother's Day. And all of you mothers out there have an opportunity to win a really cool uh, spa-related gift basket package kind of thing. I don't know anything about it, but it looks amazing if you're a mother uh, bring your mom, bring another mother, every lady that comes, uh, uh, every mother that comes is going to be uh, entered into a drawing automatically for uh, this uh, package that will be given out at the end of the service next Sunday. So we're looking forward to having a special time to honor you and of course a great day to be in church with those that you love on Mother's Day. If you recall, uh, last week I mentioned that the Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Now, Joel is the second one of 12. And in fact, if you, uh, you probably, the, the most familiar thing you are with Joel is just the name. A relatively common name today, you might uh, know somebody, might have a relative named Joel. The truth of the matter is that's about the extent of uh, how familiar we are with this book. It is, a, it is a book that has a lot of mystery to it. If you compare Hosea chapter number 1, verse 1, with Joel chapter 1, verse 1, you'll notice an extraordinary difference. Uh, a lot of times the minor prophets really uh, tell you, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, and this is who I ministered to. And yet in Joel, you don't see that at all. In fact, all you see in Joel is the name of his father, and that's the only mention of his father. And so there's really very little said about Joel. And so if you go to study the book of Joel, you'll find there's a, quite a variety of things that are uh, interpreted as it relates to when Joel preached, where Joel preached, to who Joel preached, and so on and so forth. But I will tell you, in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, we learn the most important thing we need to know about this book, and it says right there in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Let me just tell you guys, the most important thing about this book is it was the word of God given to Joel and recorded for us. Amen. And so we have here a record of an extraordinary account that I'll describe in some detail. But for our text reading today, I actually want you to go over to chapter 2 of this three-chapter book. And I'm going to read quickly just 13 verses from chapter 2. And then I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a summary and the main message of this uh, Bible book this morning. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, 
For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Uh, nor will there be ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours, devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formations and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at, uh, at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes the sword. For the, the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore says the Lord. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Amen. This is God's word, and everybody collectively says, Huh? <laughs> uh, this is an amazing story. I remember uh, graduating from high school in 1996. And in the year between graduating high school and uh, what I thought was going to be a military career, I was preparing to enter into uh, uh, service in the United States Army. I was uh, on a training program that got me prepared for MEPS. And they got me then prepared for, of course, boot camp. And in May, or March, excuse me, of 1997, about a year after I graduated high school, I was playing in a pickup basketball game uh, at the local YMCA and uh, had an injury to my knee, which uh, honestly, even to this day, has plagued me ever since. Uh, I tore an ACL about a year or so later. I had to have it completely reconstructed. Uh, needless to say, uh, my budding military career was over at that time. I, uh, my, 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 my application was immediately pulled. And you know, it was, a, it was a devastating thing for me at the time, but there was also something going on that I didn't see happening that ultimately God would bring to fruition. You see, that happened in March and in May of 1997 is when I actually came to faith in Christ as my Savior. The truth of the matter is I was running as hard as an individual could be running in the wrong direction. And God used a personal calamity in my life to kind of sideline me 
get me on my back, put me into surgery, make me think a little bit about where I was and what I was doing in my life. And now I can look back at that divine wake-up call and I can say, I thank God that he brought something like that into my life to kind of wake me up. You know, God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? God has a way of using personal calamity, natural disasters, and other events to kind of make us think a little bit. I mean, you, you look back uh, at 9-11, for instance, 2001, after the Twin Towers fell and the terrorist attack hit our country, church attendance and God awareness was on an all-time high. It seems like even recently, well, not just recently, but almost every day, almost every week now, even yesterday, another mass shooting at a, another outlet mall in Texas. I mean, it's almost like, where does this end? And it's almost like, I hope we don't get numb to these kinds of events giving us a bit of a God consciousness and a bit of an awareness of what really is going on. Now, I know this may sound a little gloomy to you this morning, but I hope to encourage you with it as well. But this is exactly what happens in the book of Joel. In Joel, the major theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. The title of my sermon this morning is The Day of the Lord is Near. And it's at least five times in the book of Joel, once in chapter 1, several times in chapter 2 and 3, Joel mentions the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a, is a panoramic subject in the Bible. It's something that is talked about over and over and over again. I used to think as a young student of the Bible that the day of the Lord always referred to the tribulation period uh, that's described in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. But I've come to find out that the day of the Lord is a much broader subject in the Bible. The day of the Lord can mean literally any kind of pointed and direct judgment by God on any specific group of people for any specific thing. So, for instance, the day of the Lord is described in chapter number one as a locust plague that literally destroyed the entirety of the crops and the food process and supply system of Israel. Then in chapter two, it's spoken of as the invading Babylonian army that we just read about that would come in in 586 BC and destroy Judah for its uh, rebellion against God. And then in chapter 3, it literally talks about the day of the Lord as the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. Now I say all that to say this, the message of Joel is simply this. God will sometimes use natural calamities or personal disasters to wake us up to a much larger and much clearer picture of something that is to come in the future. And the message for all of us this morning is when God tries to wake you up, be sure you wake up. And so I want to look at this message today in some real simple terms. And again, I know this isn't exactly like coming to church and having a cotton candy machine in the auditorium, okay? This is going to be a little deeper and a little tougher this morning, but I know that you can take it and I know that you can handle it. But I want, to, I want you to see this in three parts, very simply. I want to see what happened, what needs to happen, and what is going to happen. What happened, what needs to happen, and what is going to happen. So what happened? Well, let's back up to chapter number one and let's look at what happened. Look, if you will, at verse number two. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. 
Watch this. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So whatever has happened in, in Joel chapter number one is something that was so significant it had never been experienced by these people ever before. Such a significant moment in Judah's history that this event was going to be retold generation to generation. Now, I, I mentioned 9-11 earlier, but this, isn't that what we do today for those of us that have children or grandchildren that were not even alive during 9-11? Every year, what do we do? We replay videos and we watch documentaries and we remind ourselves. Why? Because it was an event that had not ever happened on American soil and needs to be what? Told to our children and told to our grandchildren. That's exactly what happens in Joel chapter number one. Now the event was not planes crashing into towers, but the event was locusts swarming and destroying the land. Look at the next verse, verse number four. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And then the picture here is a giant swarm of locusts that come upon the crops of Israel, and they come in four waves. The first wave, the chewing or the cutting locust, means they hit the crops while they were still standing. And those crops would be cut down, and then the next group would have been swarming locusts. They swarmed on everything that was falling off the crops. And then it says uh, there is those that were the crawling locusts, meaning uh, the, the third wave of locusts hit the ground and everything that fell from the, uh, those first two locusts hit the ground. Then the crawling locusts came through and did not even leave a scrap. This was a devastating plague. Now I know uh, today in America we don't see a whole lot with locusts or we're not as familiar with them, at least in a city like this. But do you realize that, that, that locusts can swarm in as many as 40 billion locusts at once? And in a swarm, they can consume upwards of 40 million pounds of food per day. In 2003, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization got wind about an increase in locust breeding in West and North Africa. And in, by 2004, the locust plague emerged, creating one of the largest locust swarms since 1989. Even though, listen, even though they spent $60 million trying to fight the locust swarms, they were unsuccessful because the locusts burned through $2.5 billion in crop damage in North and West Africa during that year. What an extraordinary and powerful thing these locusts were. And they were devastating to this culture. And here's what God is doing. God is saying to these people, the locusts came, and you are all wondering, what is happening? And look at verse number five. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new, the new wine. For it has been cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land. And then he goes on, and he's talking about the different groups of people that were negatively affected by the locust plague. Now, here's the catch. What happened was a locust plague. But it was to merely be an illustration of what was coming to happen. It was like this tragedy took place in Judah. But the tragedy was to awaken the minds of the people to a much greater preview of a much more devastating event that was to come. And yet, in the middle of it all, we see the kind mercy of God trying to wake people up on a micro scale 
so that they can void a judgment on a much larger or macro scale. Now, I can look back at that event that happened to me that I described in the introduction to this message and tell you there's no question about it that while that hurt me as a 19-year-old kid, and while I was confused and devastated at that time, I can now look back at that moment where I tore my knee up and still to this day have problems with it and still certain things that I am hindered from doing because of it. But all these years, I can look at a little bit of a limp and can say to you that that limp that God gave me back in, uh, way back in 1997 was an act of mercy. Was God waking me up as a 19-year-old kid going in a direction that I wasn't supposed to go, heading down a path that I shouldn't have been heading down? And what did God do? God woke me up, and I thank him today that he used something in my life to wake me up. Let me ask you a question. Has anything happened in your life recently that has been a bit of a divine wake-up call to try to get you to be alerted to what God is trying to do in your life? Could it be that you have a constant, nagging, almost unceasing marriage conflict? And it is God's mercy designed to get you to wake up before you lose it all. Somebody better help me up here. Maybe it is a repeated defeat and guilt that is attached to a certain sin that you just can't stop and you just can't let go. Every week, every day, it nags you, it bothers you, it presses on your mind, it makes you feel guilty, it kind of beats you down, it pushes you in a corner. What is that? It's God's divine mercy trying to enable you to wake up. Maybe, maybe there's somebody in the room who, who, who has an ongoing struggle with trying to fill your life with any kind of pleasantry, any kind of ease, any kind of substance. Any kind of debt that you would incur just to make yourself fulfilled and happy? And what have you found out every time? It never satisfies. You've always got to go back. It's never enough. What is it? It's God trying to put an empty spot inside of your heart so that you will be alerted to a much greater disaster that can be averted if we just wake up to what God is doing in our life. Now guys, I'm here to tell you, God loves you enough to try to wake you up. And let me tell you what I think, in part, God does on Sunday. He tries to wake us up. I mean, just think about what's going on every week of your life. The vast majority of you that work in this room or that, live in the, that are at this church, you live under constant uh, uh, challenges and difficulties out there in a world that doesn't love you and doesn't love Jesus and, and are constantly beat down by people that don't know God and your faith may be constantly questioned and, and maybe even temptation draws at you and pulls you and tries to nag you and just tries to get you to go down a path that will be much easier, and much more fun or whatever the case may be. Hey, when we walk in those doors on Sunday morning, it is a Holy Spirit, Bible-inspired alert to what really matters. I want to assure you that what is happening out there in that world is the fake and unrealistic world, the world that we're talking about here, the world of God, the world of the Bible, the world of the church. That's the reality that all of us need to be alerted to. So what has happened? A devastating plague has happened that has caused Judah to wake up. Number two, what needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is they need to view, very simply in chapter 2, they need to view the plague of locusts as a picture of what is coming. Now, I already read to you chapter 2, 
specifically in verses 3 through 11, it is a description of what will happen in that day. Now, again, I told you in chapter 1, it's a locust plague. In chapter number 2, it is the, the invasion of a Babylon. Now, you guys might be more familiar with the story of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. These preachers told these people, hey, listen, because you've turned your back on me, this enemy is going to come and destroy you. Now, in the northern parts of Israel, it was Assyria, but in the southern parts of Judah, it was Babylon. And they were going to come in like an army and literally decimate everything in its path. Did you see some of the language there? It said, in front of you, in front of them, it's going to look like the Garden of Eden, but beside, behind them, it's going to look like desolation. Speaking of an army literally coming across and wiping out everything in its path. This was a day of the Lord, to be sure. A day of the Lord that was going to be a judgment on Judah for their sin. And yet, in the middle of all this, watch this, and this is the beauty of this text. The beauty of this text is that in the middle of all this, in the middle of all of Judah's rebellion, God still issues out a response. So what needs to happen right now? What needs to happen right now is what we see in verses 12 and 13. Notice it again, if you will. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments and return to the Lord. Hey, folks, what should be happening when God issues you a wake-up call? It's very simple. Turn back to the Lord. Turn to the Lord, and notice this, turn to the Lord genuinely, humbly, repentantly, and then he, then he mentions this in, in verse 13, tear your heart or rend, tear apart your heart, not your clothes. <clears throat> That's kind of an odd thing to say, unless you've read other places in the Bible where you realize that oftentimes that there was a visible or physical demonstration of repentance in the Bible. Friends, think about, think about what happens when Job, when Job's kids all die and his house is devastated. What does Job do? Tears his clothes and falls down in ashes. Uh, other, at other times in the Bible, they, 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 they put on garments like sackcloth. Was it was a mourner's garment. It was something that you put on to demonstrate that you were going through a spiritual repentance. Now, folks, God here is saying, look, I want you to repent. I want you to turn to me, but I want it to be genuine. I want it to be humble, and I want it to be repentant. God knows today what we need less of in this day is religious formality. And we need more of people from their heart actually turning back to God. Hey, listen, I, I know I know there are people that think sometimes that church is the answer for what they're going through. And I'm going to tell you, church is not your answer. Jesus is your answer. Right. Church is a band-aid when you actually need heart surgery. Yes, and church is a great place to heal and a great place to learn. But it is a terrible place to think, I'm going to come here and God's going to fix all my problems just because I came to church. We don't need formality. We don't need to go through routines. Here's what we need. We need God to invade our hearts. And to challenge us from the inside and give us something church and dress, giving some money in the offering plate. No, God wants to do something inside your heart. Now, how would you know the difference between religious formality?
genuine repentance. Well, there's three words in verse 12. And in those three words, notice that it says here, it says, return to the Lord with, watch it, fasting, weeping, and mourning. Wow. People who weep and fast and mourn, those are three indicators that you are on the right track with God. Meaning, when you are going through something and God is trying to get your heart's attention and you are trying to come back to him, if it's genuine, if it's real, it will be accommodated by these, these really, to summarize, brokenness inside of your life. A brokenness that brings you to the end of yourself. A brokenness that, that makes you struggle and agonize. Folks, listen, there, there, is a, there is a repentance and a sobriety that comes when a person comes back to God that is far more significant than, 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 than honestly, uh, the Disneyland type of Christianity that most churches and most preachers are trying to propagate today. Folks, listen, this is not about guest experience. This is not about uh, great parking. This is not about comfortable nurseries. All those things are important. Let me tell you what it's about. It's about people coming to church and meeting with God. My job is not to put on a Disney show every weekend so that everybody is cool and comfortable and has fun when they come to church. My job is to awaken us to the realities of God and the realities of eternity. And every once in a while, when that hits you the right way, it is going to do something in your heart and it's going to be demonstrated by a spiritual heartbreak. Whatever happened to mourning in the house of God? Whatever happened to weeping and brokenness and repentance and getting things right? Not come to some psycho 101 class where we try to present therapy for everybody's felt needs. Folks, this is not a counselor's couch. This is a church. And when we come to church, somebody's supposed to be standing up and making everybody aware that God's real. And that it's all true. And that we need to turn our lives to him. And we need to follow him and whatever it means... Let God break it down in our hearts so that we actually come back to him. There's a repentance that is called for, but let me show you this. This is great. The second thing is there is a promise of restoration. Now, that's the good news. In verses 12 and 13, there's the hard call to repentance. But look at verse number 14. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? This is God. In fact, in fact, I skip. Let me, let, me, let me jump back. It says, verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious. And how many of y'all are glad for that? He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. I know some of the things you read in the book of Joel sound harsh, but let me tell you something. As I mentioned before, God is alerting us to a greater reality. God will use things to challenge us. But remember, God challenges us and breaks us is to bring us back to himself so that we could receive his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. And that's the beauty of God calling us to repentance. God is not trying to break down. He is trying to do a preferred existence. So now, what's Joel going to say? If you come back to God, it might be that he relents. Now that uh, I think in, the, in, the, in an older translation it says repents. And sometimes we, sometimes we get uh, this idea that either, number one, God just hates us all and God just mad at us all. Or we get the uh, sad idea that, that, that God actually changes his mind. None of those things are true. 
I love the word relent. Because I think the word relent really gives the idea of what's going on here. Did you know the word repent in Scripture literally means in Hebrew to sigh? You ever been holding on to something and you finally decided to let it go? By the way, that's how you always feel when you've been holding out on something on God and you finally come back to him. Wow. But then the word is sometimes used of God, and it's a different application of the same word. Did you know that God repents in that sense? Watch it. That's why the word relent is so powerful. Because according to God's word, I am going to judge you. I'm going to bring. By the way, it's true of those people that are without Christ. The Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him, watch this, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you realize that if you have never accepted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, there is a promised judgment that is coming, and John goes so far to say, if you do not believe, you are condemned already. So literally, as the old preacher said, the old preacher said that literally, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in fact, in the famous sermon that shook this nation in the 1700s, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he described a sinner as hanging out on a spider web over hell. And at any moment, that fire could lick the spider web and drop that person into hell forever. I want you to know, that's not real far from reality. But watch this. When a person repents and believes in Jesus Christ and accepts him as their Savior, guess what God does? Because God's heart is never to send somebody to hell. God's heart is to forgive and restore and be gracious and show mercy. And let me tell you something, friend. If you come to Jesus Christ today, you will get mercy in return. You come to him with your sin. You come to him with your failure. You come to him with that which you're hiding and broken over. And guess what? He is going to welcome you and he's going to receive you. And I'm going to run out of time here. But basically, uh, as you move on through this text, he, he, in verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. Verse 20, I will remove far uh, from you in uh, the northern army. I will drive them away. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. I love verse, uh, verse number 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you. What does he say? It's barrenness now. It's brokenness now. But, but when you come to me, I'm going to give it all back. Yeah. In fact, look at what verse 25 says. It's one of the most impressive verses in the whole book. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. God says, I'm going to bring it back. I was talking to somebody before the service. They were sharing with me some of the difficulties that they've had. And I, and I said to this person, I said, I said, but you know what? Here's the good news. You're such and such an age. There's a lot of grass out there in front of you. There's a lot of time left to redeem. And you very well may have come to church today. And what is behind you is a, is a, is a, is a litter box of things that bother you and things that you may feel like you've wasted and time has run up. I'm here to tell you, if you're breathing today, if you're sitting here today, you've still got a chance, you've got an opportunity. And my encouragement is, see what God may just give you back if you turn back to him. Because he is gracious. 
But let me give you one more thought, because a lot of people know in Joel, there's a very famous verse, verse number 28. It shall come to pass that afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. You may make note that that is quoted by Peter in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. It's the most famous thing about the book of Joel. And a part of God bringing Israel back, and, and I, don't, I don't have time to dive into this too deep, but, but Daniel said that God was going to bring a judgment on his people and it was going to purify them. It was going to restore them. And it was going to be over a series of 490 years, which includes the undisclosed time of the church age. And here's what Peter, here's what, here's what Joel says. There's coming a time when I restore you that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to fill my people. And my people are going to preach and their kids and their grandkids are going to follow God and they're going to serve God. And Peter, when he stands up and preaches the great sermon at Pentecost, says, this is the day that Joel spoke of. And he was quoting this verse. And in part, God's fulfilled prophecy, watch this, on restoration is what happens in the life of everybody that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You get filled with the Holy Spirit. You get placed into Christ. And now the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And we and our children and their children can experience what it means to have the Holy Spirit of God not just as an outside force, but as an inward and personal presence that came to us on the day of Pentecost. And now, Joel says, that day of the Lord is going to march on and on until chapter 3. Now, I'm going to do this real quick. In chapter 3, we answer this question. What is going to happen? Or what is yet to happen? So in chapter number 3, Joel is going to take everything he said in chapter 2. We need to repent and we need to believe in God. But then in chapter 3, he's going to demonstrate that the nations are ultimately, at the end of this time, going to be assembled and they are going to be judged for their atrocities against Israel. Now, for sake of time, just please let me, let me summarize if I can. But look in verse number 2. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord judges. Watch this. And I will enter into judgment with them there. Everybody listen very carefully. This world, and we're seeing it more and more and more every single day, hates Christians and hates Jesus. There were two prominent stories on the news just this weekend. More and more and more hate of Christianity. More and more and more hate of Jesus in this land. And by the way, guys, lest we think we're going through it here in America, there are people in distant lands going through far more for Jesus than we've ever dreamed of. I'm talking about people in places like the Middle East that are giving their lives. In three weeks, we're going to have a missionary here visiting with us from India. He will not even be able to tell his location to you for fear that somebody might find out and find out what they're really doing. I mean, their lives are at great risk. Listen, there are people all around this world today that will die for Jesus and they always have been dying for Jesus. And friend, here's what I've got good news for you. God says there's coming a day when all those nations that have destroyed me or tried to destroy me and have harmed my people, I'm going to gather them in the final battle of Armageddon in, in the valley of judgment and I am going to get the final word on this whole thing. Now, that's good news if you're reading the news today. Because if you're not careful, you're going to get real discouraged. But I'm here to tell you, in the end, Jesus Christ wins well, it amen. all. Right. Now let me point something out to you as I close, because I've, again, running out of my time here. But look at verse, I think this is a very interesting point. Verse 13, let, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, 
Go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And the imagery here is that God stores up the wrath of people like grapes in a wine vat. Watch this. All the sins and crimes of people against God for all the ages will get dumped into this wine vat. It's going to get poured out in the valley of Armageddon. And then God's going to pull his sickle out. He's going to start wiping it clean. Now that's pretty graphic. But look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. i got to tell you, as an evangelist, I've always thought of this verse as, right now you're standing in the valley of decision. But the truth of the matter is that's not what this is about. This is about God's decision to destroy the world. And when he gathers them together, you can read about this in Revelation 19. That world is going to thumb their nose one final time at God in the, in the valley of Armageddon. The nations will assemble together to fight God one more time, and God will with one swift blow wipe them all out. That's what's being described here. And that's the valley of decision. Let me, let me make myself clear here today. That decision has already been made. But in some sense, you do stand in the valley of decision today because there's a way for you to choose the right side. Literally, everybody's in the valley of decision in some way. I can decide, I don't want, that's not where I'm going. That's not what I, I want to follow Christ. I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ because there is a day coming. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of the Lord that is yet to come. Today, you can either receive Christ or you can reject Christ, but you cannot stay neutral. When you get to this day, that decision's already been made. It'll be too late. Listen very carefully. There is a allotted time for somebody to accept Christ, and it is from the time you start breathing to the time you stop breathing. And before you stop breathing, my encouragement to you right now is this. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior now Amen. before it's too late. The day of the Lord is near. He will bring us to these places daily, weekly, monthly, where we're supposed to turn to him and be reminded of him. But then it's to point us to one day, ultimately, that he will judge the world. And he calls you and implores you to repent and turn to him. Let's pray if we could. Lest you get nervous, not every minor prophet is like this. Some are. But folks, I got to tell you, as bizarre as it sounds, Joel preaching hundreds of years before Jesus came, likely 800 years before Jesus came, speaks to us like he's reading the front page of the newspaper today. Extraordinary. We're going to enter into a time of invitation, then we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, I want to tell you, the Lord's Supper is something we're going to observe here in just a moment. It's for the church. It's for us to remember that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. In a moment, we're going to look at the body and the blood of Jesus together. Before we do that, I cannot help but give you that invitation to find yourself welcome at that table. Those who do not know Jesus as their Savior do not have a seat at his table. 
Now, we want you to stay and watch because there's something for you to learn. The body and the blood is for you. But for those of us that know Christ as Savior, we're remembering that, rejoicing in that as we close our time. But before we do, let me invite you to do this. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But today, you would like to do that. You say, man, look, God's been trying to get my attention. He's been trying to wake me up. Well, good, let him wake you up today. Let him do it today. The Bible says it's very simple. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Right now, I'm going to give you that opportunity. You say, preacher, I want to be saved today. I want to know Jesus as my Savior. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. Right there in your seat, I'm going to invite you just to pray this simple prayer by faith and ask God to be your Savior. Would you do that with me? Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it quietly in your seat. But you must pray it by faith. My prayer won't save you, but Jesus will. And that's who you're talking to. So right there in your seat, you can say, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe he rose again from the dead. Today I believe he is the only way of salvation. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. Help me never to be ashamed of you. Praise God, friend. Listen, I could see some of you. I could hear some of you. How many of you right now say, preacher, I want you to know, I just prayed that prayer a minute. I'm glad I did. Thank God today that he got me. He woke me up. Today I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm thankful for that. If that's you, would you just let me know who you are by just slipping up your hand? Would you do that for me? Just slip up your hand just right now. Just say, man, I did that. I meant it. I'm glad I did. I'm not embarrassed about it. Thank God for it. Good. Who else? Anybody else? Just lift your hand right up. That's me, preacher. I, I prayed that prayer a minute. So glad that I did. We're here to help you. we got some men in the back that can help you. We've got some Bibles and some other information we want to give you. So let us help you. We're thankful for you. Please see me right as we close the service. I want to ask our pastors and deacons to come forward, if we will, and prepare for the Lord's Supper.